Hello, my name is Anne-Marie Cannon, and I'm the host of Armchair Historians. What's your favorite history? Each episode begins with this one question. Our guests come from all walks of life. YouTube celebrities, comedians, historians, even neighbors from the small mountain community that I live in. They're people who love history and get really excited about a particular time, place, or person from our distant or not-so-distant past. The jumping-off point is the place where they became curious, then entered the rabbit hole into discovery. Fueled by an unrelenting need to know more, we look at history through the filter of other people's eyes. Armchair Historians is a Belgian Rabbit production. Stay up to date with us through Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Wherever you listen to your podcast, that is where you'll find us. Armchair Historians is an independent, commercial-free podcast. If you'd like to support the show and keep it ad-free, you can buy us a cup of coffee through Ko-fi, or you can become a patron through Patreon. Links to both in the episode notes. Hello, fellow Armchair Historians. And welcome to another episode. I'd like to start out by thanking all of our Kofi and Patreon supporters. You know who you are, and your support really means the world to us. And if you can't support us financially, the other thing you can do is you can like us on social media and join the conversation, as well as leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. We're currently on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find links to our social media pages at www.armchairhistorians.com. In this episode, I talk to author, sweetheart of the sideshow, and fashion writer, Elise Carter, about her new book, The Red Menace, How Lipstick Changed the Face of American History. And believe me, the book is about way more than just the product of lipstick. From the colonial period until today, this engaging book focuses on the many layered historical aspects of this one product, including social, cultural, marketing, corporate, political, religion, and much more. Elise S. Carter is a freelance writer and a consulting copywriter to the beauty industry, and she's a sideshow performer based in New York City. She has written for Allure, New York Times, Racked, Wall Street Journal, and others with a focus on pop culture. In addition, she spent over a decade as a consulting copywriter for beauty brands such as Shishido, Bliss, Laura Mercer, Avon, L'Oreal, and Madame C.J. Walker. As her stage persona, The Lady Eye, she has worked as a professional sideshow performer, sword swallower, fire eater, blockhead, and pain-proof girl, and MC with acts ranging from Rob Zombie to Cirque du Soleil, and has appeared on TV's Gossip Girl, Oddities, The President Show, Mysteries at the Museum, and Dickinson. Elise Carter, welcome to Armchair Historians. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Uh, I was just saying, who knew that there was so much to write about this topic, and you cover it all, it seems like, in this book. But what is your favorite history that we're going to be talking about today? Oh, God, there's so many. One of the books that really changed the way I started writing was uh, a book by an author named Rich Cohen called Tough Jews. And I liked it just 
personally because it reminded me of my family. It reminded me of my, my grandfather, my Zadie Jack. But also it was just an interesting way of looking at history. It was personal without it all being, you know, without like, how is this about me? And it was just, you know, it was just an angle on American history that you wouldn't have considered and sort of how important the mob was and how important Jews were to the mob. We think of the mob as very Italian, but Mm -hmm. it's actually a little slightly more diverse than that. And uh, it was just, it's a great book. I read it, I think, right after I got out of college or within a few, you know, those first few years. And it, it really fascinated me. And it really, in terms of my own later writing, like made me want to go look for those smaller stories that hadn't been told, but actually have a much bigger impact than you think. And it just things that we tend to be dismissive of because we think we know about them and we don't, we, or we don't tell those stories. They're hidden histories. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I just yeah. released an episode through Nagorski. We were talking about then an aspect of his life that wasn't covered, that he covered in a book and that you wouldn't think about. And yet it's that, lesser known history, the not known history. It's a thing that I like to cover on my podcast or the hidden histories, the LGBTQ plus history that we really don't know about that people are digging through and figuring out what these things mean in our history. How does that apply to the book that you've just written? And Tell us about the book. Yeah, it seems like the two things are not related, but in a way they are like, I am telling in this lesser known stories. And sometimes, you know, I'm talking about who someone is a very big deal, like Charles Revson, who founded Revlon, or Elizabeth Arden, who founded the Elizabeth Arden Company. You know, they're a big deal. They're big, you know, well-known household names, or at least their companies are. But sometimes I'm talking about someone who's much smaller, but no less a part of shifting America, like Marsha P. Johnson, who was one of the people who kicked off the Stonewall riots, for example. And, you know, she was variously an unhoused person and someone who spent time in jail and mental institutions and very, and as a sex worker in a very rough life being black and trans in the days before Stonewall, not that it's gotten, you know, it's gotten easier, but not perfect. And to tell her story as part of it. And also, you know, big flashy stories, people like Dolly Parton, you know, like I, you can't underestimate Dolly Parton. So it's just an amazing American figure. One of our our truly great Americans, certainly at this moment in time. So as I said, I've always just been very interested in, I used to be very involved with a museum in a learning space called Morbid Anatomy. And there they talked about, you know, their mission really was to get people interested in what they called occult history. And they don't mean occult in the sense of satanic, but in the literal sense of the word, which is hidden. These are hidden histories. And now you would not look at the subject of lipstick, which is obviously an object that everybody knows and think of it as hidden. But there were things in there, there was so much mythology I couldn't get over. Like, you know, we have these stories, I hear as someone who works in the beauty press over and over and over again. And I hear about like, Oh, Elizabeth Arden gave lipstick to the suffragists, and that's what got middle class or 
women to wear it and it made it respectable. And that's how we all came to wear lipstick. And that story, I can't say it's a lie, but I couldn't find any record in either Arden's archives or in the contemporary press to verify it. So I think that's a bit of corporate mythology. So really, what is the story? And, you know, we have these other things that come out of the way we collectively remember history, which I think in America is very heavily influenced by Hollywood. Like there's Hollywood history, and we tend to take that as the truth. And it's not, it's, it makes a better, you know, and I'm someone with a film, two film degrees, it makes a better story, but it's not what actually happened. And the example in the book I give is we think of like, only saloon girls and sex workers and, you know, wore makeup in the old West or were interested in lipstick. And I found the teeny tiniest papers from Idaho and Colorado and the, the smallest towns, you know, towns, I don't even know if they still exist. And they're like, here's what's going on in Paris this season. So clearly women were reading about beauty and clearly the newspapers were publishing it because women had an interest in it. Well, why do we remember it that way? Why do we make it, you know, this contest between respectable women and not respectable women? So there was a lot there that was hidden. And when I pitched it, I was looking around, you look around for comparable titles and I'm like, you know, there got to be 50 things I can pull up. And I couldn't find very many. I couldn't find anyone who, you know, there are great books on beauty. This is not to say there aren't great books. And like Hope in a Jar uh, is a great book. And Lindsay Woodhead's definitive biography of the rivalry between Rubenstein and Arden is fabulous. It became a musical with Patti LuPone. It's great. But I... I found a lot of the books on lipstick itself were either coffee table books or were repeated the same myths. They mm-hmm. repeated the lipstick index and they credit it with that to Ron Lauder. And it's actually a lot older than that. It might be the first time people heard it, but it was not the first time it was suggested. It doesn't work mathematically. Oh God, I've seen it so much in the last couple of weeks because, you know, when the economy is shaky, everyone's like, the lipstick index is coming back. And it's like, it's not because it doesn't, it's not a thing. It's mathematically just not a thing. And I felt like, it felt like being the nerd in class. I'm like, didn't anyone do the homework? Didn't they look up this ardent stuff? And I couldn't find that people had. So mm-hmm. my take on it, while there are other great books, that's not to knock other people's work at all, on lipstick specifically, not a founder story or um, beauty, you know, dating back to antiquity, I just really couldn't find anything that was comparable. And I was surprised. And I don't know whether that's just straight up, we don't take women's stories seriously? Or I don't know. I, I don't know what the answer is. I think that's part of it, certainly. Well, they were, um, they yeah. needed for you to come along and to <laughs> ask the right questions. I mean, uh-huh, what's so. the name of the book? The book is The Red Menace, How Lipstick Changed the Face of American History. It's a brilliant title, too. <laughs> Thank you so much. I spent a lot of time explaining to people, it's not just red lipstick. I chose The Red Menace because it was a sort of pun on history. It comes up in the 50s. It was the, the Red Menace itself is a concept of describing the threat of communism or socialism to America. And, you know, I just lipstick felt like something that in some ways was very threatening. In some ways, you know, in some ways it's very celebrated. 
Yeah, when you say threatening, do you mean threatening to the establishment of the main religions, the political order of a period in time? Kind of talk a little bit more about who is uh, perceiving it as such. Yeah, it starts off in America, and America has a very, I'm researching the next books, so this is very much on my mind. America has its roots in, in Puritanism and Calvinism and this sense of like the holiness of self-denial. And also that women should be, women like children should be certainly seen and not heard and maybe not even seen that much. So in the Victorian era, American women were wearing it to some extent. Queen Victoria herself very specifically hated lipstick, like she mentions it, to Parliament in one of her addresses. But the thing about it is, the reasons are it's considered dishonest. You might trick a man into thinking you more you're more attractive than you actually are. And he'll marry you and then get you home and you'll wash your face. I love that. Yeah. Which is kind of hilarious. Just it's like, well then you've married someone real stupid, you know, like you're gonna be miserable for other reasons. There are some roots to it in the Bible. And there is some religious objection to it. But a lot of it is just about Americans, a lot of Americans put a high store on women's modesty. And you don't want to stand out. And also, you it really wasn't so much in the beginning, really until the second half of the 20th century, that it was about your personal expression. It was about recreating the blush of youth as that, you know, we get paler as we get older, lips fade a little bit. And so it was considered both dishonest and you're getting old, just be old. Uh, don't try and fool anyone. And that is a very bold statement for a, for a woman to make. They, you know, like, I am not going to age gracefully. I'm not going to be an unseen, unheard crone. I am, I am going to, you know, still consider myself very vital, very sexy, sexual. And so that is a very threatening thought. By the mid-20th century, everything flips and you wouldn't consider a proper lady wouldn't consider going out of the house without a lipstick. You know, that is part of being well-dressed, well-groomed. We put a huge emphasis on it. We go back and forth. If you think of 18th century French courtiers, makeup is a very unisex thing. Men wear it, women wear it. And with the American Revolution, we are very quick to put our collective style, you know, sartorial fashion foot down and be like, we are Americans. We are not fancy French people. We are not Europeans. We don't have a king. We are Americans. And so, and we're plainly dressed and we're, we're out being pioneers and, and taming the wilderness that is America and, and the American experiment. So there's a lot of it that's just about, we you know, men and women very quickly ditch, you know, the wigs, powdered wigs start to go, face powder, beauty patches, all of that starts to go very quickly because we're Americans. And it's that is the, you know, flag t-shirt of the of early America. And it's just it's an expensive item. It's an impractical item. It certainly existed. The first I guess ad you would call it. I found we were still a colony. It was 1760. I found it in the paper that Benjamin Franklin owned and they were selling rouge and powder, which is an early form 
of, you know, it was a red coloring for your skin. You could use it on your lips, you could use it on your cheeks. So we were using it. It just would have been either a very upper crust item because women who had the disposable time and income to use it, you know, that was a thing. And it's also, you weren't doing farm work. You weren't doing chores. You weren't out in the sun. I don't put lipstick on to garden or clean the garage. That would be very strange. And it's, it's very, you know, most of Americans live at this point on farms in, you know, if not small cities, certainly, you know, at the edge of the wilderness. So it's really not an item most Americans, middle class and below, have a use for. You know, the exception to that being theater people and, you know, sex workers. And so it is a very tarting yourself up thing. But it's not just them. It is upper class women. So we are using it as a new nation, just not a lot and only a certain amount. And it's a luxury item that is highly impractical. Well, and one of the other things you talk about Martha Washington and how she had her own Mm -hmm. recipe. Uh, It seems like, I mean, obviously early on, people were probably making it for themselves or having it made for them. And one of the other things you talk about is the fact that it was something that you didn't really talk about. It was something you did, but you didn't necessarily... Like today, you know, we think of the Kardashians and they're constantly some new product, yeah. lipstick, whatever. You know, oh, it's yeah. out there. And the um, it's not something that we necessarily uh, talked about on the Internet back in the um, early days of America. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about a world with no, you know, no mass media, barely a press. You know, we have the beginnings of it, but not a huge amount and like... First of all, who wants to hear from women? I mean, forget it. You know, like men are doing all the important business, so to speak. But I, I can't. But yeah, I loved finding that recipe from from Martha Washington. And I get asked about that a lot. And it was funny. I found it. And it's got a lot of things you can't even buy anymore, like the earwax from Wales, um, which is known as Spermacetti. And <laughs> it has lard in it. And then it has raisins, raisins. in it. it. Is it raisins I, for the color, do you think? It's or? probably for the sweetness. Oh, okay. I think, I'm guessing. Somebody tried to make it using a substitute wax, and they're like, yeah, it's greasy. It's pretty gross. And it was funny. I remember showing the recipe to my best friend as I was researching as a vegetarian, and she's like, that's disgusting. And I was like, yeah, you really don't need those raisins. <laughs> 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 and I, it, it is pretty foul. I mean, I don't suggest you make it at home, but it's in the book if you want to try your own version. But it is understandable. So yes, it's also we are a country, you know, it's pre-largely the Industrial Revolution or just at the very beginning of it. So we don't have mass manufacturing, right? which is another reason these items are so expensive. And I think that that technical difference, like just... Lipstick is something else I found in the book is something that as its technology improves, its place in society changes. Technology is a huge mover of, of society and of, of changing social norms. Can you give us an example of that, of a, of a place in history where um, the technology led to this change with regards to lipstick and how yeah. it was accepted and perceived? 
Yeah, um, the first lipstick tube, the kind of tube that we think about, you know, the slide-up tube, was patented in 1917 from Newark, New Jersey. And before that, lipstick was like a crayon. It was in a stick form, and it might have been wrapped in wax paper or just plain paper, like, like a Crayola crayon, and put in a cardboard box. And the mix of it was such that it was very easily melted. And so it was, I always describe it as a boudoir item, you know, like these days you would not take out floss and floss your teeth at the dinner table. (laughs) You know, if you went out for dinner, your companions would be like, that is disgusting and you are never invited out again. Lipstick was very similar. It was something you put on in your bedroom if you put it on. And, And a lot of at this starting, let's say, in the Victorian era, you get upper middle class and upper class women wearing it, but you never, as you said, you never talked about it any more than you talked about like how you got into your corset. It was a very private form of hygiene and, or your dressing habits. And it was just not something that was talked about. Plus you really can't take it anywhere because it's a mess. It will melt. And if it will melt, it will like, if you have pockets in your dress, which you might not, forget it, you know, like, forget it, they're ruined. If you carried a purse, everything in the purse. It's it's a mess to carry. The formulas get harder because, you know, they get waxier and they get a little harder. But um, someone in New Jersey, I forget, his name always escapes me, invents the tube, which is pretty similar to the tube we use today. Now, suddenly it's closed and you can put it in a purse and you can put it in a pocket and you can put it in a glove box in your car and also at the same time more Americans have cars more Americans are in the city Americans go to the women go to the movies women go to department stores women are just physically out in public more than they've ever been as opposed to being like farm wives or laborers or people who live miles from, you know, living miles from other people. You know, you go to town once in a while, but generally speaking, you stay at home. So suddenly, the two things of women just being physically more mobile, thanks to boats and trains and cars, people concentrated together more in cities. And now you can take your lipstick when you go. So to me, the big change in American consumption, and I think worldwide consumption, of lipstick is not wearing lipstick. Women were wearing lipstick before the 20s. It's reapplying lipstick. It's having a lipstick you can take with you and reapply as you go about your day. More women are in jobs, you know, pink collar, blue collar jobs as these things change. And so just the technology of having having the lipstick tube sort of changes everything. Edith Wharton, who you think of as like kind of the the word on Victorian propriety and what was good and what was bad, found cha- um, putting on lipstick at the table like foul. Like again, she, to her, it was, you were, might as well have flossed your teeth after dinner. It was to her, she found it just disgusting, which was interesting to me. It wasn't, she didn't oppose wearing lipstick. She opposed people she opposed people reapplying it or, or that the world sort of knew you were wearing it rather than being your little secret. Like that's how you sort of improve the extended, the blush of your youth. So you talk a lot about the industry of makeup and how it affected and dictated, you know, women and, and their 
mark you know their marketing and uh, you t you also say in the book women of color would be largely left out of the mainstream conversation around beauty consumption for years to come. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's interesting. I found Madam C.J. Walker's granddaughter, or great-granddaughter, I think is actually a scholar of some of this stuff, certainly of her grandmother's accomplishments. And there really should be more definitive books on the history of women in color of co women of color it, and beauty in America because it's a fascinating history and I you know not exactly my story to tell as a white lady but I did want to dig into it and include them and their history as much as I could and it's interesting because they women all women who were consuming lipstick they were among that number and because they were sold the same dreams that all women are sold that it attracts men and that it's aspirational and that you you'll look better socially you'll be more socially prominent you'll be more attractive it's the modern thing to do they were given that same messaging their messaging was also unfortunately layered with the white supremacy of beauty like lighter skin is more beautiful thinner lips certain colors are okay certain colors are not and very much left out as consumers. I mean, it's really, I have been writing for the beauty industry for more years than I want to count. And I feel like it's only in the last 10 or 15 that we've really started mainstream brands, really it all started to reassess things like, what are our lines of foundation? What does, what does the word nude mean? Like, because people when they're naked are different colors. And so like, generally when you're talking about a lipstick, that's nude it's more often than not matching a white skin tone and that's most of the world doesn't look like that nude um so there are all these layers to it and one story that i found just fascinating was max factor for example just you know very popular mass market brands they just did not, their color ranges, you know, cer certainly skin tone matching, just was not very wide at all. They generally just didn't think about, you know, Hispanic or Asian or black skin tones. They just didn't match for that. They didn't think about it. But of course, you know, all of these women wanted lipsticks of their own. And there were business models, um, one of which I just found uh, really fascinating which was there's a company called Lucky Heart Cosmetics. And we think of, when you think of door-to-door -door cosmetics, you think of, immediately you think of Avon, and it, it gave housewives income, and it gave them a measure of independence. And, you know, it, so it's a very interesting, important model, um, this social selling. But what I didn't realize was that there were equivalents specifically designed for women of color. And the mm. other great thing about that was not only did most companies not keep colors that appealed to them and flattered, but also going into a store while they were segregated was a whole other set of issues. So this allowed consumers, women of color, 
black women very specifically to skip the experience of having to go into a store and that they were were not welcome in and it allowed to buy from friends and neighbors so it was you know it was a trusted person it was a person in your neighborhood in your church you worked with whatever so that door-to-door model meant an entirely different thing to women of color uh, and it provided with something an experience they might not otherwise have had you know, you certainly could go in and buy from Woolworths or your local drugstore or your local general store or whatever was in your town. But for a lot of people, this might be easier and it might be a lot less stressful and it might be a lot more thoughtful. Mm-hmm. They advertised in Jet Magazine and Ebony Magazine. And they, you know, it did also encourage that sort of have your own income and working your spare time and that sort of modeling that we generally just associate with Avon and Mary Kay. So there were brands and I, you know, there was uh, Madam CJ Walker didn't do a huge amount in color cosmetics, but yeah, I was wondering about that. I know, I know her for hair, but I didn't know if she did cosmetics. Uh, Not tremendously. I think they did go into cosmetics for a while, but not, you know, not deeply and not what they're known for and not what she made her, her fortune on. But still an amazing American story. So it is the history of women of color and cosmetics is deep and it's just as long. And it's, I mean, you talk about your hidden histories and, you know, I did not know. I grew up here. I grew up in Manhattan. And so uh, one of the department stores was Bloomingdale's. I was familiar with Bloomingdale's. I could, as a young kid, not young, but, you know, as a teenager whatever I could that's as far as I could walk from my parents apartment that was mm-hmm. okay and uh, I remember on their floor and this is the 80s revealing my age a little bit uh, was um, you know they had this incredibly fancy shiny flashy selling floor for cosmetics and one of the brands there was Flory Roberts and Flory Roberts specifically catered to black women to women of, and Hispanic women women of color and they were fancy and gorgeous and upmarket in this very competitive space. So all my life, I just assumed she was black. Flory Roberts must have been black. And uh, it wasn't until I wrote this book that I discovered she was not. She was a marketing, she was a blonde lady from New Jersey who found a niche in the market. She had been in marketing and she had met through her work and her travels with a number of black models and they were blending their own foundations oh, okay. to get the right colors. And she's like, well, there's a hole in the market. And similarly, the brand Fashion Fair was started by the wife of the publisher of Jet Magazine in the 60s. They had had mass market brand stuff that you could get at Woolworths and stuff you could get from Lucky Heart and a bunch of other companies. But there was very little that was upmarket. There wasn't a clinique. And as people are are ascending into the middle class, they demand that too. And that's fair. And so you start to see upmarket brands. And that doesn't come until the 60s. The 60s are an interesting time because a lot of people, a lot of women are rejecting the necessity of makeup. Mm-hmm. But also at the same time, you're seeing the Black is Beautiful movement. So 
Where do we see this history in pop culture? I, I think the thing about this particular story and the way I set up the book is that it's everywhere in pop culture. I, it is part of the language. It is, um, it's a business history. It's a cultural history. It's a consumer culture history. It's an entertainment history. I come from a background of, I went to film school and studied film history. So I think some of my initial interest was just in like the Max Factor ads. And I, oh, I love Max Factor. Like, and one of my favorite things was finding out that his real name is Maximilian Faktorovich. Oh my uh, word, I never knew that. <laughs> I didn't either. Interesting. It sounds like a joke, but no, he was, he was like my grandfather, a Polish-born Jew, and worked for the Tsar in his opera company, and that's sort of where he learned some of his wig-making and, and makeup skills, and escaped from the Tsar's pale by disguising himself and smuggling out his family. Wow. That's a whole other episode. It's a whole other episode. And, <laughs> you know, his business is, is fascinating, and it, it speaks to you know, both the power of fame, like the rise of mass media, just that we had distribution systems for all happening at the same time, like the cheap press, a literate audience, just millions of Americans go to the movies at least once weekly. And that the, you know, people started learning from the movies, like how you acted if you wanted to be upwardly mobile or middle class or respectable or glamorous and like the enormous impact that these things had. So that's, you know, just one part of it. It's a feminist history because it's both something that is intensely feminist. It's about women's desire to control their own destinies and express themselves and be seen in public but it's also intensely not because it's very much about, it can be very much about the male gaze and the way we talk, you know, the sort of the way we talk down to women and the way we assume everybody just wants to catch a husband and be pretty. And that's really what matters. I especially and, like that you, yeah. you talked about that duality. Yeah. Duality is a good word for it because it is both very intensely about women's sense of self and sense of, just being in the public sphere like that's such an enormous thing like i'm researching my next book on the spiritualist movement and i you know one of the real foundations of it is just this incredible frustration women have of just being told to sit down and be quiet for years you know they can't speak in public they can't speak in church even the under the best of circumstances even with the privilege of money they live these very difficult lives with losing children and just being squashed at every level and how soul killing that must have been. And so it is very much about women just, you know, saying I've had enough. And sometimes in some generation, that means like um, rejecting lipstick and just being like, I don't need your male approval. And in some generation, that means, you know, like I'm going to wear all the lipstick I want. And that makes me feel powerful. And both of those things are totally come from totally legit places, mm -hmm. in my opinion. And yeah. it was such a dynamic way of viewing American history and a way of viewing the popular culture. I have a friend whose whose book I all of her books I recommend, but like especially she wrote her name is Joe Weldon, and she wrote a book called Fierce: The History of Leopard Print. And so you know she has long been a teacher. The color my sensei of the sensational. She also runs the New York School of Burlesque. 
And she has long been a mentor to me. And she, you know, she was saying like, well, you know, once you get a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just, I thought of her so often when I'm in writing this book, because I'm like, yeah, this is just a big red hammer because it just was everywhere. It, you know, really was just such a fascinating way to look at America. And I, I think America's, all of American history, all of American pop culture is sort of, and people are very uncomfortable with this these days, but it sits in this duality of things that are very lofty ideas and things that are very good ideas. And just also horrible racism and oppression and sexism and homophobia and transphobia and all of these things. But we also have like liberty, fraternity, equality, like the notion of it and all the ways in which we fall so far from it. Where can we find you? You can find the book at lipstickbook.com. And uh, if you're interested in my sideshow stuff, you can reach me at Lady I, A-Y-E. So yeah, tell us a little bit about your sideshow Yeah, my side hustle, I'm, I'm a little, I'm dormant right now just because there are not enough hours in the day and I took the pandemic and stuff. I will go back. I was the sweetheart of the sideshow, the flame-proof, pain-proof Lady Eye. And I swallowed swords, I ate fire, I can escape from the straitjacket, I have a bed of nails, I do the whole thing, I'm a blockhead. I loved it. I was obsessed with it since I was like an early teenager and maybe even preteen. And I just love Sideshow. I loved all the books on it. It was I was in college when like Jim Rose Circus Sideshow hit big and I was fascinated by it. And it just seemed so punk rock. And for years, 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 I, you know, I read everything I could get my hands on. Geek Love is obviously one of my favorite novels, just because also because I'm Gen X and it's just such a brilliant brilliant book a set, series of books came out called shocked and amazed life on and off the midway by a, a historian uh, and dear dear friend james taylor and uh you know i it's funny because i am also a world trade center survivor and i oh, wow i you know after that uh you get the sense like life is very short what do i want to do with the rest of it and I had wanted to go to Coney Island has a sideshow school. I don't know if it's still open. And I wanted to do it, but it was expensive and I could never quite get ahead financially enough to like pay for that. And it's funny because I was talking to a friend who's also now one of my best friends, fabulous artist and gallerist now, AV Fibes. Uh, it's a gallery in central Mexico now because she gets in places. And I was talking about it. I was like, yeah, I'd really like to eat fire. And she's like, oh, I'm a retired fire eater. I'll teach you. So I learned in someone's apartment in Brooklyn. Um, she had high ceilings. And, uh, <laughs> she had high ceilings. She had high That's ceilings. That's important, it, apparently. Okay. It is. And it's such a New York story. And so I did that for like a year and a half. And I loved it. And I had never been a performer. In fact, I had terrible stage fright through most of high school and college and thereafter. <laughs> So I had to read, I had to learn to be on stage. So I took every show and every dipshit, I'm sorry, opportunity I could for like a year and a half and I was exhausted and I loved it. Oh, I loved it. And I was developing my stage persona, which is what my friend Bob calls. It was based on this idea, which I also thought of often writing the book, which is called female, female impersonator. Like, 
you know, Dolly Parton is sort of the ultimate example of a female female impersonator. You know, it's like she was assigned female at birth, but and then she took it to the next level. And so it was that I wanted to be glamorous. I, I set my stage persona up as um, we don't use the word Barker, but we use the word talker, but just the same part uh, Carnival Parker, part Dorothy Parker. And so I wanted to be very wry and glamorous and elegant on stage and, you know, sorting out what that character was. And also it wasn't something I had seen with Sideshow. Like Sideshow was very rock and roll. And so I wanted to wear evening gowns and and big jewelry and makeup and be as as glamorous as I could be. Um, And it's all sort of ridiculous. So, yeah, I have been on Dickinson. I've been on Mysteries at the Museum as a talking head. I've been on the first iteration of Gossip Girl and the President Show and stuff. And it's ridiculous because it's just like nobody ever puts out a casting call like we would like a curvy middle-aged woman to be on the show. And they're like, oh, but we'd like a sword swallower. And uh, used to have very few choices and I was one of them. There are... I, it feels like there are a ton of them. Not that I don't welcome them, but I'm just like, ah, you're always like, who are these kids? But I'm not really. They're great. Yeah, I, I have been the sweetheart of the sideshow. Uh, the last couple of years have been tough. Uh, I did not like performing virtually. And I, I had lost my father and I had mm. one gig and it was supposed to be a big gig and I just hated it. And they hated me. And I just was like, I need some time off. Mm. And so I just sort of withdrew for a while and I think about going back I miss hosting that was my favorite thing but I just think like she's you know sleeping beauty right now but she's there I know where she lives I know where she keeps her clothing and you know I can always pull out the wigs and the heels again and the lashes that's a good way to put it yeah so where else can we find you uh well right now I'm working on the the next book proposal which is going to be about spiritualism which is another women's history I think is sort of little remembered and and has great really um, seems to very applicable these days um, with women's agency and and mass death going on in the country Mm. Um, and uh, yeah so you can get me at either ladyeye.com A-Y-E or lipstickbook.com so and i'll link out to all of those yeah. places and the i read an atlantic article about you as the fire eater or the sideshow or the talker yeah. or what what whatever you choose yeah. to call it um which i thought was really delightful thank you uh yeah i was in the new york times about i have a license from the new york city fire department uh, really for, yeah new york city licenses a uh licenses fire performers as well they should because there's uh, yeah. some bad ones <laughs> makes sense yeah even uh. the people i interviewed who are just wonderful performers were like god it's amazing we didn't kill ourselves well elise thank you so much thank for you being for here me. i really enjoyed our conversation today likewise thank you so much there you have it elise carter and the red menace To find out more about Elise, the book, and some of the books that she talked about, be sure to check out our episode notes. Thanks for joining us, and have a great week.